Take your Bibles, please. Turn to the book of Matthew, where we are in the Beatitudes, but the larger context is the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, the greatest sermon ever preached. This is the fifth message in that series. We've come to the fourth Beatitude, the fourth Beatitude, which is in verse number six. But uh, to get in the context, without taking too much time, we'll read the first six verses, okay? Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. And seeing the multitude, he, that is Jesus, went up into a mountain, and when he was set or seated, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the one we'll consider today in verse 6, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The greatest sermon ever preached begins with the greatest blessings ever pronounced, the Beatitudes. These are not a menu of options. These are essential virtues for every believer. The natural progression in the Beatitudes continues. There's an order here. There are logical steps to blessedness. The first three steps that we've already considered are somewhat negative in nature, you could say. They involve giving up, denying yourself, not doing certain things. But with this fourth beatitude, the tone changes to something more positive. The first three are absolutely necessary for the fourth. Christ's righteousness in view here, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, comes only after we have, first of all, experienced poverty of spirit. We recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. Did you know that you have no righteousness in in the righteousness column in your life? You have none whatsoever. You need the righteousness of Jesus. We'll say more about that. You and I are corrupt, and we must come to an end of our self-reliance. That's hard for us Americans to do. We pride ourselves in being self-made, our sturdy self-reliance. But whether we're Americans or whoever we are, we're going to have to come to the end of ourselves in order to be saved, just like that prodigal son in the hog pen. Blessed are they that mourn. Verse 4, that means we admit our guilt. We admit our spiritual bankruptcy. In sincere repentance, we turn from our own way, which is a sinful way, because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. We abandon all pretense. We are transparent before God because He sees us the way we are anyway. Blessed are the meek, verse 5. With, the, with this uh, third beatitude, we break new ground. This is the first beatitude that deals with others or our dealings with others. The, uh, the first two can all be done in yourself toward God. Poverty of spirit, mourning, that's before God. But meekness refers to the way we treat and respond to others recognizing that God is allowing these tests providentially, and we must let God be God. 
We must not usurp His prerogatives. We must not chafe at His providences. We must not rebel at His precepts. Meekness. Oh, the need for that today. We celebrate just the opposite of what the Bible celebrates. We need to exercise restraint and gentleness as unto God. But once we've done that, a new spiritual appetite begins to grow out of genuine heart submission to God. And so with this fourth beatitude, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, we cease to be so introspective. This beatitude, as I said, is is the first really positive one. It's positive because a hopeful tone is introduced. We look away from ourselves, from the problem in ourselves, to a solution that is outside of us. By the way, if you want a surefire prescription to be depressed, you just keep looking in at, at your own heart. Because for every look at your own heart, you need to take 10 looks at Jesus or you'll be depressed. The path of deliverance starts when we obey God's command, the very verse that the Lord used to save Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher. Isaiah 45, verse 22, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved, saith the Lord. Now, we've been brought to mourn and hate what we see in our own hearts. And when we come to that place, then we meet God's condition, requirement to look up for a solution. I think of the children of Israel at the waters of the Red Sea. God said, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. They looked behind them, there were the hordes of the Egyptians. If they looked at the, uh, uh, either side, there were steep mountains. If they looked in front of them, there was the impassable Red Sea. The only way they could be delivered was to look up. And they did, and they were delivered. We need to look up this morning. We need to look up and see the righteousness of our God and our Savior. Now, it's, it's important, and it's certainly a matter of inspiration, that Jesus says here, blessed are they which do hunger, hunger and thirst. We understand those concepts. I mean, when you are hungry or thirsty, it's all-consuming. It distracts you from any other pursuit at the time. If you've worked so hard physically that you've sweat and there's not a dry stitch of clothing on you, and your body is craving for H2O. Do you think you're going to be suddenly distracted and by a commercial on TV and say, oh, I forgot, i got to go buy that razor. i got to go get that hair conditioner. Oh, no. The only thing on your mind, give me some water. I must have it. No one has to remind you. Now remember, to drink, you're going to get dehydrated if you don't take a certain amount of water every day. Nobody has to do that. How striking it is that the two most urgent needs of the body are used by Jesus to set forth the cravings of the soul for righteousness. By the way, righteousness is the theme of this whole Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. 
One of the summary verses we'll get to and explain more fully is verse 20 of the same chapter. Chapter 5, where Jesus said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed, go beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. I guarantee you, his listeners perked up their ears at that. And then, of course, Matthew 6, 33, the next chapter, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So this matter of seeking the righteousness, craving it, it's a deeply doctrinal matter, but it's also an intensely practical matter. Oh, I pray God will show you that today. So here's the outline. What is involved in having a true hunger and thirst after righteousness? What is involved in that? I hope you remember these points. They'll be on the screen for you to jot down. Some of you have the little notebook. Some of our children have the little notebook, something to write in, and they'll be able to keep it all together. What is involved in hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Well, first of all, there's an appreciation of Christ's personal righteousness, an appreciation of Christ's personal righteousness. Please note that Jesus did not enjoin upon us, listen very carefully, He did not enjoin upon us to hunger and thirst after blessedness. Did you notice that? There is a blessing associated, but He didn't say to hunger and thirst after blessedness. He said to hunger and thirst after righteousness. But most people are, are, are hungering and thirsting after blessedness. There's an epidemic even among Christian people in our day that causes them to think that everyone, including them especially, is entitled to happiness. My wife and I hear it all the time from the people that we counsel. But doesn't God want me happy? I hear that all the time. Would you listen very carefully? The answer is no. You might be shocked. God wants you holy. And happiness is the byproduct of holiness. If you set out to be happy, you're not going to find it. If you justify everything you do because it makes you happy, you're going to offend a holy God. God wants you holy. And what was the standard for holiness in the Old Testament? What was the yardstick God used to measure? The law, the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, we have a different standard. The standard is Jesus Christ Himself. Because He is, are you listening? The end of the law. The aim of the law. For what? For righteousness. Everyone that believeth. Romans 10 verse 4. Listen carefully. Jesus Christ was the only absolutely righteous man who ever lived. Only one. There are some great godly people, but they they weren't perfect. All others proved to be sinners. So none of them can help us. Not his own mother Mary. Not Mohammed, certainly not Mohammed. Not Malcolm X. Not the current pope or any of the previous popes. Not the Dalai Lama. 
if any of us have any hope at all of becoming righteous, are you listening? We're going to have to get it from Jesus, the only perfectly righteous one who ever lived. And that ought to be your chief concern today. Not to be happy, but to be holy. And when we talk about this righteousness, we're not just talking about some general kind of morality among nations. Some people have this fuzzy idea about that. Yes, it is true, and we often hear it said by conservative Christians at election time, quoting Proverbs 14, verse 34, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That's a wonderful, inspired statement. But that righteousness there is not just some universally accepted code of ethics, maybe that was codified in Geneva sometime in the past. We're not talking about that kind of righteousness. In fact, sad, sadly enough, great statesmen down through the history of the world and civilization, in many cases, have had a keen sense of fair play. There have been great statesmen that we look back to and thank God for. They've been consistent. They've been honest. They've been transparent in their dealings. They've been faithful to the trees and con- contracts they led their countries into. But we don't like to say it, but let's face it, many of those same people were unfaithful to their spouses. They were disloyal to their marriage vows. Personal righteousness goes far deeper than just an accepted code of morality. This righteousness is a necessity for salvation. We just read verse 20 where Jesus said, For I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case, no exception, God doesn't grade on the curve, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness, true holiness, is not an option. Hebrews 12, 14, listen to what God's Word says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That's what God says. And so Jesus compares true holiness with the, holy, with the, the righteousness of, of the scribes and Pharisees. They had it all wrong, the Pharisees, when it came to holiness. To them, righteousness and holiness was just a matter of conformity to a set of external rules. And the Jews had about 613 of them. And the Pharisees, as they did them, just kind of ticked one off at a time. And they felt pretty good about themselves when they got through. But they performed all 613 of them out of pride to be seen of men. And oh, how Jesus angered them when he exposed their deficiency and their hypocrisy. He said, on the outside, you look like a nice painted wall, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. True righteousness is found only in a personal relationship of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in submission to His Lordship. You know, you can't be saved by trying to be good. Now, I'm glad people try to be good or this world would be a whole lot worse off than it is. I'm glad some unsaved people, the majority of people in the world are unsaved. I'm glad that many of them are merciful, 
and have some kind of code of ethics. They have the law of God written in their hearts. I'm thankful for that or this world would be in far worse chaos than it is. But did you know that God demands absolute perfection? He does. He said, no, God, Pastor. God knows we're not perfect. He loves us. He meets us where we're at. All right, hear what the Word says. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. James 2, verse 10. That's what the Bible says. Again, I say the only perfect man who fulfilled the law in its entirety to the letter was Jesus Christ. And therefore, since none of us are righteous, there is none righteous, no, not one. Since none of us are righteous, we must have His righteousness credited to our account, or we don't stand a ghost of a chance. God's not going to let anybody into heaven, not even one that defileth, the Bible says in Revelation 21, 27. We need to appreciate Christ's righteousness, His personal righteousness. As a necessity for salvation, and a corollary thought to that is as a negation to sin. By negation, I don't mean that sin must be just counteracted or offset. I mean that sin must be replaced. Sin must be replaced by righteousness. No man lives in a spiritual vacuum. You've heard it said, and it's true. Nature abhors a vacuum. That's why we have thunder. Because of the vacuum created by lightning. If you're going to displace sin, are you listening? You're going to have to replace it with virtue. With the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ. A desire for righteousness, please listen, is a desire to be right with God and to be rid of sin. It's a desire to be right with God and a desire to be rid of sin. I I heard... uh, the late Warren Wiersbe preached in person several times when I was in Bible college. I'll never forget one illustration he gave. It stuck with me. Well, I've remembered more than one from him, but this one really did stick with me. He talked about a little girl driving with her daddy through the slum section of New York City. And they came to an intersection where they had to stop at a red light. And she looked over on her right and she saw another little girl about her age who was absolutely filthy. She was playing in the backyard of a little tenement apartment. She was playing in the mud. The little girl couldn't help but gasp, and she exclaimed to her daddy, Daddy, doesn't that girl's mother love her? Look how filthy she is. I love the way the dad answered. He said, it's not that the mother doesn't love her, it's that the mother doesn't hate dirt. And the Bible says in Psalm 97, verse 10, ye that love the Lord hate evil. I'm speaking to a bunch of people here today. If I said, do you love Jesus? Probably 99% of you would say yes. But now do you hate sin? Oh, that's another matter. You do not love the Lord any more than you hate sin. The late great British pastor was right on when he said that he knew of no better test of one's Christian profession than this. 
what we're considering today. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? If you cannot answer that question positively and honestly, then you better examine your foundations. We need to appreciate Christ's personal righteousness thirdly as an end in itself. By that I mean the true child of God loves righteousness for its own sake, not because of any advantage or, or commendation from somebody or reward that it brings. We are to be like Jesus. And Hebrews 1 <clears throat> verse 9 speaks of and to Christ when it says this, speaking to Jesus, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Jesus was the very epitome and fulfillment of God's law of righteousness. Jesus was absolutely perfect, right in word, thought, and deed, even though far from being praised for it in His day, He was vilified for it. He was crucified for it. Why? What was His crime? He perfectly loved God and you and me. And for that, they put Him on a cross. You think people are going to appreciate us when we live righteous lives? Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus concludes this chapter that we're in now by saying, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do those words echo anything in your mind from the Old Testament? They do in mine. The words of Leviticus 11, verse 44, where God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's the only reason he gives. And so to hunger and thirst after righteousness is nothing but to be longing to be positively holy. And that's an overwhelming passion to be like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I must hasten and move on. What does the hunger and thirst after righteousness that Jesus talked about here, what does it entail? It entails, secondly, an appropriation of Christ's imputed righteousness. And I'm throwing a bunch of theological words at you, and I'm going to explain them, okay? An appropriation. I think you know what appropriation means. We appropriate food we, when we take it in. We need to appropriate, take in Christ's imputed righteousness. The big word for this in the Bible is justification. Now, sometimes we use that word in a little bit different sense than the Bible does. Often, if we use the word justify or justification, we're talking about defending ourselves or a rationale for something we do. When the Bible uses the word justify or justification, it means this. Justification is the act of God. It's something God does, not you, not me. Justification is the act of God in declaring righteous the sinner who believes on Jesus for salvation. He declares that sinner righteous the very moment he puts his faith in Christ. The righteousness of Christ, that perfect righteousness we've been talking about, is instantly imputed, credited to the sinner. The reason very few are justified in that sense is they're not willing to renounce their own righteousness. We've got a hunger and thirst after Christ's righteousness, and we won't do that until we renounce our own. We must come to realize, as the Bible says in Isaiah 64, verse 6, all of our righteousnesses, are you listening? 
the very best we think we can do, surely God appreciates that. No. You know the way He looks at it? He says they're filthy, stinking rags. Menstruous cloths is what it really means. The very best we can do, God sees it that way. How does He see our sins? But we are prone to protest. Oh, but I served as a pink lady at the hospital. Good for you. I appreciate the pink ladies at the hospital. I've been blessed by the pink ladies at the hospital. But you can be a pink lady at the hospital and not submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can use that to bypass the whole issue of His righteousness. Oh, you say, but... I'm not picking on the ladies, so let's, let's turn it a little bit. Maybe you're a man, you say, but I built a Habitat for Humanity house for a paraplegic. Oh, I'm so glad you did. I appreciate people do that. I've been blessed by a house that many of you men built down in the Cayman Islands. But you know, you can do that and not submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh, I, do- I donated generously to refurbish Lady Liberty. Some of you old enough to remember that. Well, they were raising money for sprucing up the Statue of Liberty. You know, you can do that and still not submit yourself to the author of Liberty. We must appropriate the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Very quickly, we do it by faith. I'm just going to give you some references. I hope you jot these verses down. I don't have time to have you turn to each of them. By faith, Romans 3.28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without, or that means apart from the deeds of the law. No man has ever been saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. No man or woman has ever been saved by keeping the Golden Rule. No one has ever been born again by keeping the Sermon on the Mount that we'll be studying for over a year. As good and needful as those things are, they are still works. And the Bible says, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified, no flesh be declared righteous, Romans 3.20. We receive the gift of Christ's righteousness, which we so desperately need, only by faith. It is a faith that comes from the heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And it was years after Paul met, as Saul of Tarsus met Jesus on the Damascus Road, and he was soundly, dramatically converted. It was years later that he said to the Corinthians he was still trusting in Christ's righteousness. He said, that I may be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You can't do anything for it. You're too late. It's already been done. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is completed. Everything that needed to be supplied for your salvation, your justification and mine was done by the Son of God. We're justified by faith. We're justified by grace. That is not any human merit. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I love that verse. It is so soul-humbling. There is absolutely nothing that you or I can do to merit salvation. We are justified freely. The first thing that comes to our mind when we hear that word freely, because we love to get free things, is without charge. But although freely can mean that, that's not what it means in this verse. 
It doesn't mean you're justified without having to earn salvation, without trying to pay for it. You are justified, listen carefully, without a cause. That's what that word means. I tell you, it humbles me to think God didn't see anything in me that made him feel sorry for me and redeem me and justify me. There's no cause in me. It's all him. It's his grace. We're justified by blood. Romans 5, 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Oh, there's a tremendous message in that. I don't have time to go into it. There was a price that had to be paid for our justification, even though we couldn't pay it. You can't just sweep sin under the rug. You can't just look the other way. God doesn't. He is holy. Sin must be punished either in your person in the lake of fire forever and ever, or in the person of Jesus Christ, the divinely appointed substitute. There's no way that you and I can atone for our sins. Oh, we try all the time. It's amazing the lengths that people will go to to try to compensate and atone for sin. Their guilty conscience bothers them. We need to come to the place where the hymn writer came Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no languor know? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And aren't you glad that Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to be our representative? And he died a death that he did not deserve. To pay a debt he did not owe. There was no other way. There was no other way that sin could be forgiven and sinners could be justified. And you've got to come to that place where you aren't trying to depend on anything else. You're depending completely on Jesus Christ as Savior, and you realize you are only justified by His blood, His death. I hasten to get to the third point because I believe probably this is what the matter that Jesus had in mind when He used the word righteousness here. That is, a growing appetite for Christ's imparted righteousness. Imputed righteousness is a different matter from imparted righteousness. I almost said implanted. If I had, the meaning would not have been very far off. It means about the same thing. Listen carefully. Once we have received Jesus Christ as our justification as the righteousness that God imputes to us, the righteousness of Christ, and He has satisfied that spiritual hunger for freedom from guilt and fear of hell, and I'm so thankful we can have that. There's still an ongoing need for hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I don't care if you've been saved for 60 years and have been growing in grace every year of that time. You still need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. So since... Jesus doesn't specify which aspect of righteousness he was talking about, imputed or imparted. I'm going to deal with both of them. I just read this week Hosea chapter 14, verse 8. I want you to see this verse. If you'll turn there, keep your finger there, Matthew chapter 5. The first of the minor prophets is Hosea. And God is uh, writing to a backslidden Israel, the northern kingdom here. 
I just want you to realize that righteousness even imparted, the actual righteousness that is worked out in our lives is as much a gift of God as the righteousness that is credited to us at salvation. Look at verse 8 of chapter 14, the last chapter of the book of Hosea. Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, also known as Israel. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? And God responds, I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. And then look at the next phrase, from me is thy fruit found. The fruits of righteousness are as much a gift of God as righteousness itself. Look at verse 4. God's, what God promised Israel, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. There's that word again, without a cause. For mine anger is turned away from him. And I'll just tell it like it is, folks, because I'm going to answer to God for what I tell you today. If you're pardoned, and you're justified, you're truly a child of God, you're going to long to be right with God in thought and word and deed. You're going to long to be actually righteous. A person who is truly born again desires not only a declaration of righteousness, which God does at the moment of justification, but you crave a, a demonstration of it in your life. It bothers me. I'll get a pet peeve out of my system. Let me scratch an itch for a minute. I see a lot of Christians, I hear a lot of Christians saying, and some of them put it, they used to put it on their bumper stickers. I don't see it so much anymore, and I'm glad. They say this, or the bumper sticker reads this way Christians aren't better, just forgiven. Ooh, that bothers me. If by being forgiven you're not any better, why would anybody want what you've got? If the righteousness imputed to you doesn't become imparted to you, what kind of righteousness is that? We need a spiritual taste for divine things. Have your taste buds changed over the years? Mine have. I tell you, uh, I guess this is a confession, but I, uh, for a long time, I couldn't, couldn't eat turnip greens. I came down south, and if I wanted to be accepted in certain circles, I had to eat turnip greens. Never forget Bob D'Angelo coming down, and we took him out to Big Ed's. It was the only had the downtown location, and somebody ordered him turnip. I think it was Alex Guptit ordered him turnip greens, and. He tried to hide the dish under the table, but it didn't work. I didn't like turnip greens originally, but I, I love them now. It was fixed right. Spinach, same way. My mom was a, a northerner, and so she, uh, at Thanksgiving time, would make regular bread, you know, dressing, stuffing for the turkey. I came down south, and you don't do that. It's got to be cornbread dressing. And so now I love cornbread dressing. The reason I say that is a man who is spiritually alive is going to have a spiritual taste. He's going to have a relish for the things of God. Some would call this a sense of the heart. 
I must be quick here. We've got some other things to do. Let's just, just, just please jot down these references. I hope you'll look them up later. He's going to have a relish. He's going to have a taste for God himself. Like David said in Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing, he didn't say 20 things. He said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why, David? Why do you want to do that? Here it is. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. God's character is intrinsically beautiful to the Christian. You know, when the prodigal son was hungry, we talked about the prodigal in the last series of messages on the parables of Jesus. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed in the hog pen on the husks. But when he was starving, he went back to his father. Are you starving yet? Do you hunger for God? Do you hunger for His Word? 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, as newborn babes, the child will dedicate today is not a newborn, usually it's a newborn when we dedicate one. As newborn babes desire the sincere, the unadulterated, the pure milk of the Word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. I'm telling you folks, if you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, you're going to have a taste for it. You'll love it because it's pure. It'll be your lifeline. You'll delight in it. It will be your treasure. It will be your love letter from your heavenly spouse. Paul, or David said in Psalm 119, 103, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You know how much I love honey. I wasn't getting enough of it from the membership, so I had to have, create my own beehives. I'm, I'm just kidding. No, y'all, would, y'all were keeping me in honey and maple syrup, and I appreciate it. But honey is sweet to the taste. I have to have it every day. I love it. Do we have a relish... For the word like many of us do for honey. We need to have a hunger for other believers. The fellowship with other believers. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life. John said because we love the brethren. And I think we need to include the sisters in that too, don't you? Now, we need to love everybody. We need to love the world for whom Jesus died, most of whom have not been brought into the fold yet. Yes, we need to, Jesus loved the rich young ruler, even though he didn't believe on him. He went away sorrowful. But there's a special love that we need to have for the children of God. I hope you don't love to hang out with the devil's crowd. I hope you don't find them cool and funny and clever and witty and entertaining instead of being vexed as Lot was with the filthy conversation of the wicked, and it's getting filthier every day, folks. When you have a choice, who do you want to hang out with? God's children? They're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, David said, Psalm 16, verse 3. If you really feel that way, you know, this place would be packed out if all of our people they claimed to be a member of Friendship Baptist Church, felt that way. You, you just couldn't wait to get to church to fellowship with God's people. They just shrug off the, the filth and the, the, just the unfitness 
the dirtiness you feel from rubbing shoulders with the world all week long. Do you have a relish for God and the things of God? I'll tell you one way you can tell. When you don't have to be thinking about anything and nobody knows what you're thinking about, do your your thoughts naturally turn to spiritual things? That lets you know that your spiritual taste buds have changed. And then a corollary, and then I'm done. Do you have a relish for God and for the things of God? If, If you do, then you're as a godly person, you're going to hunger and thirst to see righteousness in others. You're not going to fear that if that happens, it's going to make you look bad. When you see others wallowing in sin and you know what they're doing and what it's going to do to them, it pains you. You understand how David felt when he said in Psalm 120, verse 5, My soul is among lions. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach and that I dwell in the tents of Keter. May God speak to us about that. We need to go after those that are in the, uh, that are sinking into the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. We need to have a thirsting desire for personal holiness. My time is gone. Have you ever prayed this prayer? Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Isn't that a good prayer? It's not enough to mourn our sinfulness. We did that back in verse 4. We must hunger for holiness and thirst for Christ's likeness. It's not enough to be right theologically. Our hearts must be right. I heard about two pastor friends who were grieving over a fallen colleague and Almost every month, sometimes every week, we hear of a pastor or an author who's either left the faith or left his wife or both. They were grieving over this fallen colleague, and one of them, trying to be positive, exclaimed, he said, well, at least he was sound on the atonement. To which his friend said, Of what use is that if the atonement did not make him sound? Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 16, Take heed unto thyself and to the doctrine. And I'm speaking to myself this morning, the thumbs pointing back here. I wish I could preach about how we need to long for the manifestation of God's righteous kingdom on earth. We'll have to save that for another time. The godly man or woman doesn't long for 20 things, but for one. For perfect righteousness. For all the fullness of God. Did you know that if there were no heaven at all, the godly man or woman would still long to be righteous? It doesn't take a godly person to desire to go to heaven. 
Any man in, the, in his right mind wants to go to heaven. Any hypocrite will desire heaven and dread hell. But only the holy hunger after righteousness. What's the promise associated Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. What a comfort it is to know God will not create a hunger which He does not intend and have a means to satisfy. For they shall be filled. Filled with what? Filled with what they want. Hunger. Righteousness. The righteousness that the Holy Spirit works in them and all the fruits of it. I think you know that one of my heroes... You know exactly where I'm going. You could, you could name him. Go ahead. David Brainerd. David Brainerd died before his 30th birthday. What a holy man of God he was who experienced the power of God upon his ministry. Yes, he was a melancholy guy. Jonathan Edwards said he was the most melancholy guy I ever met. And Edwards knew him well, put his journal together. But at 27 years of age, and I'm not going to ask how many of you in your 20s and but not older than 27, but I know I'm talking to a number of people. Some of them are gone on a camping trip. I hope they'll hear this. At 27 years of age, David Brainerd wrote in his journal, if you don't have it, I'd urge you to get it. This is what he said. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, this pleasing pain. Yeah, a hunger is a cramp. A thirst is not too pleasant, but yet it's a pleasing pain. It makes my soul press after God. Oh, that I might not loiter on my heavenly journey. The language of my soul is I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness and never before. I hope that echoes your sentiments. Let's pray. Father, please change our spiritual taste buds. Please create soul hunger, soul thirst for true righteousness. Help us to know by sanctified experience what this pleasing pain is all about. While we need to be satisfied with Jesus and all that we have in Him, help us to be thoroughly dissatisfied with a lingering corruption and defilement in our natures. Oh God, fill us with Thyself. For Jesus' sake and in His name we pray. Amen.